0: Welcome back to Behind the Screens. I'm Matthew Lieberman from Movio. And I'm Ryan Preventure, in for Simon Burton, who is welcoming the latest Burton into the world just now.
1: Yeah, absolutely right there, Ryan. Uh, Welcome to the world, Max Maverick Burton. Uh, You all heard that, right? Many might think this is because Top Gun Maverick crossed a billion dollars in the week that Max was born. Uh, It's not really true. It's more of a family thing. Uh, Not many people know that Simon's middle name is actually Goose. So uh, this is a follow on from that. Uh, Mother and son are doing very well. Max was born at 3.1 kilos, 51 centimeters. And for those in the Imperial part of the world, that is six pound, 12 ounces and 20 inches long. So uh, another healthy Burton in the world. Congratulations, Simon. Congratulations, Sarah and welcome Max Maverick. Uh, Why don't we now talk box office? I feel like uh, that Maverick middle name might be a a decent
0: segue again there, Ryan. It's it's a really good segue and congratulations to Simon and his family again there. You know what? It was Top Gun. It was Top Gun this weekend. It's been Top Gun for over a month now. It grossed another 45.7 million at the box office this weekend. As you just said, it grossed over a billion dollars. Only two films have done this during the pandemic. And one of those was a Marvel movie. This isn't a Marvel movie. So that is that's really just saying something about the staying power. And I I've looked at some of the numbers. There are people who have seen this film five, six, seven times. You don't see that. You don't see that in non Marvel type superhero movies. So a really, really, really good sign there. And Jurassic World, when we look to franchises, did another 43 million at the box office. It's at 747. It looks all points being like it's going to cross the billion mark for them. That's great for a franchise that sort of is wrapping out this portion. We'll see where it goes from there, but certainly that's a really, really great number. And you had another strong opening with Elvis. It opened internationally as well as domestically here in the United States this weekend. Internationally, it did 20 million. It just, Again, it, I, I said this last weekend as well, but overall, really, we're just looking at excellent, phenomenal numbers all over the world. It's really, it's a great, great sign. And and that Elvis, which is, a, you know, looking towards a different audience, has had a strong opening internationally.
1: You know, we were talking just before we hit record here that in Australia, so Baz Luhrmann's hometown, uh, or home country, sorry, the film has just crossed $8 million dollars uh, in, in Aussie dollars, so a really strong outperformance there. On the one hand, you've got an Aussie creator, but on a very strongly American lead character. So um, we're starting to see the breakout of, of that character there, especially um, in face of, of competition for similar audiences. So on that fact, why don't we look at the audience for Elvis? It has, in terms of similar audiences over opening weekends, one of the most diverse sets I've seen in a long time. Uh, Top Gun Mavericks there, uh, unsurprisingly Rocket Rocketman, the, the Elton John title, but then we've got unbearable weight of massive talent. Back to the musical world where the star is born, the latest out Nabby, which skews more female and older, as does something like Father Stube, and then Jurassic World Dominion, so a couple of the blockbusters topping and tailing that list there. More infrequent audiences came along than what we typically see for the average opening weekend movie. 33% of the audience for Elvis was infrequent, meaning they come fewer than four times a year. Typically we'd see that uh, at 27%. And this came mainly at the expense of the frequent audience, which was 28% for Elvis versus 35% for all movies across their opening weekend. It does seem to be a little bit more of a couples or date movie when we look at the the shopping basket. 55% of uh, transactions had just two tickets in it. Uh, We typically see that at 48%. The film did play very old, which is a little unsurprising or quite unsurprising, I'd say given the subject matter. 52 percent were aged 55 years or older and that's versus what we would typically see across an opening weekend and at 21 percent now i'm not sure this will break out and skew much younger over time but with a 94 percent rotten tomatoes audience score it might go a little bit beyond those who bought uh, elvis's records as kids when they were first released all those years ago especially based on baz Luhrmann's reputation uh, as you mentioned, Ryan, it is far more female skewed, Elvis that is, versus what we typically see at 55% female versus 43% for all opening weekend films. And this age and gender mix no doubt means that some of the cinema workers cleaning up after uh, show times might have been picking up older ladies' bloomers thrown at the screen
0: when Elvis was performing.
1: And that's really all I have to say about this film. <laughs>
0: well, wh- <laughs> I don't even know how to respond to this. One other good <laughs> note about Elvis. Uh, that I'd read this weekend was that 63% of the people bought their ticket same day on Saturday, which potentially shows a really, really good word of mouth there. And there's also nothing else like this. You know, skewing to a little bit of an older audience is is the Top Gun area, but this is different. This movie's different, and I think the other important thing is there hasn't been a movie like this during the pandemic yet. So it's really just phenomenal, phenomenal number.
1: I was uh, lucky enough to go and see it with uh, my 14-year-old daughter and my wife on the weekend. We heard it might be a little long and we'd heard some of the mixed reviews, you know, sitting at 77% for reviewers on Rotten Tomatoes. All I can say is lean into the audience review over the reviewers. Uh, You could pick holes and flaws in it, but if you go for the ride, it's a lot of fun. Uh, Some had mentioned, I'd I'd heard on podcasts and, and read in articles that it's a bit long. I wouldn't necessarily dispute that, but my feeling is it's long at the beginning and it comes home with momentum and you walk out on a real high. So um, to your point, hopefully that word of mouth uh, continues on and gives this film some solid legs.
0: And Baz Luhrmann has gone all over the country. Uh, He was here in Burbank this past weekend where a friend saw it. And they said as, as wonderful as it was to see the movie and they loved it. It was just great to see a director so excited about the movie going experience and wasn't expected to show up. The audience didn't know he was going to be there. And he's been doing that all, all over the country. I, there's something to be said about filmmakers and actors really going out and supporting the cinema going experience. And and Baz and Tom Cruise are really, you know, my good friend Baz and Tom Cruise <laughs> are, really, are really doing that. So I, I, I give real kudos to people who are doing this huge support of the cinema going experience.
1: Baz had the entire uh, Coliseum audience at CinemaCon eating out of the palm of his hand. He was on the verge of being uncontrollable to the MC but kept it right on the edge and uh, he was just charming. So Ryan, that's um, that's Elvis but there was another title that came out that may made, made some waves.
0: Well, it was again, another really good counter-programming. We haven't had... A true horror film for a little bit of time here and the Bloomhouse, you know for almost every time they release a movie they get pretty close to hitting it out of the park and black phone is another example of that 23.3 million dollars is a strong opening weekend without a huge star in it and it's certified fresh at 84%. That's good for a horror film, a B plus cinema score. So, I, you know, everyone from Universal to the audiences, to the exhibitors, everyone should be just really, really happy with these, these numbers. Another like important thing to think about is we have till July 22nd before we have another horror film in NOPE. And NOPE is hopefully gonna just tear into the box office and have a huge opening, but it gives the Black Phone that kind of breathing room. Whether whether horror films really tend to have a ton of legs, we'll see with this one. But with a nice opening like this, uh, if it has a reasonable you know, drop off over the next couple of weeks, this is a really, really going to be a nice, solid box office for Universal.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And just to echo your point, I'm so impressed with the way Blumhouse know how to open and work their titles. I just wish I had the courage to actually see some of them. But uh, always impressed with the marketing that that I get to see let's take a look at the similar titles um look I guess this is a um, a rogues gallery of, of, of titles as you'd expect you've got the the Scream reboot from earlier this year men X Halloween kills the recent Firestarter, the the recent Candyman it chapter two and don't breathe Two, the sequel in terms of the audience frequency 70% of the opening weekend audience were either um, infrequent or occasional, meaning they visit 10 times less per annum uh, or fewer times. And that's in in line with the opening weekend of those similar horror titles I just mentioned. Demo, spot on for age. 59% of the Black Phone audience was aged 12 to 34%. That's that's pretty much the same as the benchmarks, but it did skew much more female. The Black Phone was 51% female versus 46% against our benchmarks. As we generally see uh, in terms of uh, domestic horror audiences, there was an outperformance amongst the Hispanic and African-Americans over Caucasians. Caucasians typically represent 49% on average for all opening weekend audiences, but it was 62% for the black phone. Uh, We saw nine point increase for the Hispanic audience up from 18% on average uh, for all movies to 27% for this one. And similar for African-Americans up uh, five points from 12% to 17%. So we saw some of that diversity of audience coming in to match some of the diversity of titles. So that's it for the box office this week. Uh, Ryan, what we're going to do now is our typical round table, uh, which we do for, for every one of our major trade shows. So uh, let's go across to my discussion with Sarah Luthwaite and Leon Newnham. So as is our usual tradition now, after a major trade show, we've gathered together our our Avengers. We've got Leon Newnham, who's the CEO of Vista Entertainment, Sarah Luthwaite, the incoming CEO of Movio. We are missing Simon Burton, as we mentioned at the top of the show, because of the birth of his new child, uh, Max Maverick Burton. Uh, So it's just the two of you this time joining me. But we want to talk Cine Europe. uh, But it'd be remiss of me up front not to ask whether you think it's weird that years after I did it first, Simon married a woman
2: called Sarah and had a child named Max <laughs>
0: uh I don't know if
2: it was you leading the way or or maybe Top Gun that's rattling around and led him on there but yeah
1: no, no I
3: just think here. everyone needs a Sarah in their life so
2: uh
1: <laughs> okay we're going to start with the big question up front this is the same as what we've heard at AIMC it's what we heard at cine uh, cinema con Uh, Guys,
2: is cinema back in Europe? I would say I would continue the momentum and the sentiment from from CinemaCon at Vegas. My my gut feel is I just want to shout yes. I I think the data might give a slightly more balanced view, but definitely yes. And and I think what sticks in my mind is the standing ovation uh, with no prompt um, to Tom Cruise jumping out on stage. Um, I think no matter how well that movie was going, if the whole industry wasn't starting to, share optimism i don't think they would have done that um and so i think that was a real moment
3: yeah i think to, to leon's point obviously we're coming off the back of a really hot box office few weeks so they we had the advantage in europe of really celebrating that but i just felt from you know the trifecta of conferences we've been to CinemaCon, con aimc and now in europe it's just gone from strength to strengthen and, and the optimism just continues to grow i think europe has the unique uh, aspect of the strength of the local content and that I think has really just reassured people that cinema is back, not just with the amazing Hollywood releases like Top Gun, but also with some really strong local releases, which balance off the box office really nicely.
1: Yeah, and as you mentioned, there has been that trifecta of trade shows. You guys have been on the road for the, the better part of eight weeks at CinemaCon, then in Australia, now Cine Europe. What was new in Barcelona, either at the the formal agenda or what you saw in um, The meetings you attended or the the cocktail parties and in the the buzz unofficially through the the convention
2: Uh, first thing i would say sarah has been a fabulous travel companion um through all three trade shows i i would say at barcelona between this most recent conference and the year prior there was almost no talk of streaming or the threat of streaming at all it was all about the audience is ready to return how do we get the volume of content to return along with it the conversation was very much driven around uh, that. And, yep, uh, local content um, was a big part of that conversation, but that was what really marked it for me. I think it was the, it was now just about maximising the value you could get out of that returning audience. How about you,
3: Sarah? Yeah, I guess building on the comment about local content, local content is one piece of the puzzle of a diverse slate. And, you know, that, that idea was starting to be talked about in, I think, CinemaCon. Obviously, lots of people have been aware of the importance of that for a while but I think it really kind of came to life and it's it's funny you know this past weekend already you know puts that to the test you have something for everyone finally at the box office with a horror film you have like a musical drama you have some action in films some adventure films so finally you cut ca- we're at the part of the season where we do have something for everyone in the audience so I think it, again it kind of was the right time to be championing that message to all the studios that cinemas really do need that the content to be successful
1: yeah i wanted to dive into that a little bit further because i think definitely the tent poles are back we're seeing that in record-breaking titles like spidey and and top gun maverick but the number of titles as well as the diversity of titles has been lacking and just to put that in context i was looking at the number of releases for quarter two 2022 in looking at the domestic market there have been 164 releases that's just eight more than last year and it's 200 titles fewer than in 2019 and 2018. So aside from diversity, uh, did the studios talk about the number of releases they're going to put out? And, you know, I guess this has been a happy confluence of titles that we're seeing in the market at the moment. Many of them were sitting on on the shelf for a number of years. So to what extent is there a commitment to diversity and a commitment to greater volume that you might've heard there?
3: I definitely heard the commitment to diversity loud and clear. A lot of the studios late presentations Spoke to that and showcased that, and really reinforce they're not just about franchise titles. Um, some slates even did, you know, profile some really unique titles. I know from the the Paramount presentation, uh, they have a Forrest Gump remake that's from Bollywood. So some really kind of unique niche titles that was it was nice to see as part of a slate presentation for for a change um in terms of the volume yeah I think it's it's a math game at this point you know you're right I think box office is still down versus comparable years but it, it is just about the lack of volume and I don't I didn't hear anybody come out and specifically commit to more titles they're committing to quality titles and committing to diverse titles and committing to honoring the window. so those were the kind of the bigger messages I took away.
2: I find this topic fascinating because I'm not sure anyone would have predicted with so fewer titles that the box office would be sitting at, for most circuits, somewhere between um, 70 and 80% of what they would have done in 2019. Um, Although I would say that June's been tracking very well compared with June 2019. You know, there was a lot of chatter about what studios might do there. But until we start to see the release slates upcoming, it's a bit difficult to have full confidence. But the way I look at it at the moment... The the thought I was left with at the end of Cine Europe was, on the one hand, the box office isn't quite where we would like it to be in terms of 2019. But it seems as though with more titles, the volume of titles that we might have seen in 2019 represents a huge amount of potential upside. And the signs are that there's a lot of confidence and commitment from the studios to release more. And if you look at it from a macro perspective, You know, films take a couple of years to make in many cases. Was anyone going to be rushing out the door in 2020 to release a whole bunch of films theatrically? The answer is is probably not. And therefore, I think now the answer would be you probably will. So it'll take a little while, I think, for that to unwind. And I do think we need that volume to see it reach that potential. Yeah,
1: good point. Now, you were both talking about the fact that streaming wasn't uh, mentioned too much, uh, that there was commitment to the theatrical window. And that seems to be the case in places like Australia and North America. But of course, Europe has some idiosyncrasies and the Hollywood Reporter just published a feature talking about the impact of the extended windows that are to an extent legislated in places like France and Italy, and how that might force studios to skip the cinemas altogether in those select territories. We've already seen that happen with Disney opting to bypass theaters for their upcoming animated title, Strange World. And it's going straight to its Disney Plus platform. So what was the discussion like on the ground uh, around those sorts of decisions, maybe on a market-by-market basis that you might have seen?
3: Yeah, I know um, it is sort of the elephant in the room of what's happening, for instance, in France. I think the rhetoric from the studios was certainly the importance of respecting the window and the importance of theatrical experience. I don't think there's any question that the other experiments of the other models are still dead. They're dead in, in Europe, just as they are in other territories. Um, in speaking to some colleagues who work for cinema chains in markets that have been affected by the Disney decision, it is challenging, but they've had to get creative and use that uh, challenge to find other content to fill that void. For instance, the family audience and how they use event content and, and other um, partnerships to, to, to offset that. And whether that is going to be long term or not is, is TBD, but they're certainly not sitting on their laurels and just waiting for Disney to change their mind.
1: There was also a lot of talk from what I gather about the premiumization of the cinema facilities, a greater commitment to experiential service delivery and almost countering that talk about pricing and inflation. So what did you hear there?
2: Yeah, there's no doubt that momentum will continue for um, premium large format, you know, experiences that exp- expand on what we might refer to as traditional cinema. Um, I think that's going to pick up right where it left off in 2019. Um, there's definitely a huge appetite for moviegoers to to see that including for me as a moviegoer i found it really difficult to find a screen to go and watch Top Gun maverick in, for example and i think that's crazy it literally transitioned over to uh, jurassic park dominion before i got a chance to find a half decent seat anywhere in los angeles that's just crazy to me um so i think that that general sentiment is shared across exhibitors for europe for sure what do you think sarah
3: yeah, premium experiences, definitely. But I think what Matthew's hitting at, which I think is a really important point, is, is kind of the chicken and egg scenario where you want to deliver premium service. It's not just about the PLF experience. You want to, you know, these VIP concepts are growing in popularity. Consumers are willing to spend a bit more on a special night out, but then you don't have the service staff to deliver on that experience because of, of the challenges with staffing, etc. Um, there was a panel that talked to the issue around staffing. I thought it was really interesting discussion. And you know, um, actually, Jane Hastings from Events in Australia was over and she was talking about how cinemas need to position themselves to the youth of today as a real um, employer of choice and make sure that we're continuing to build our employment brand um, to be a kind of a coveted employer, which I thought was an interesting lens, again, of just not assuming it's hard to find people. But what are we doing to create differentiation as an industry, as a sector, to make it a really appealing job for, for young people in particular? So yeah, it's tough. It's a it's a tough challenge. It resonated with almost every client I met with that staffing is the number one issue they're facing. So um, certainly not something solved overnight, but at least those discussions are, are happening.
2: Yeah, you, you picked up on Matt's question a little better than me. I, I think the other anecdote I'd share is we had Pathé come in with uh, their automated gate technology um, with partnered with a supplier and they brought it along to Center Europe to, to share with people and it was amazing how many exhibitors came through to check it out. And it, it wasn't what I expected. It, it wasn't necessarily, well, we don't then need the staff to rip tickets. It was, well, staff members can focus on other things and just keep one eye on the gate. Um, and, for example, when they're cleaning an auditorium, we can use the gate to keep it closed so that moviegoers don't come into the auditorium while we're still using, you know, the leaf blowers to pop popcorn around and clean it up. And I thought that was really fascinating um, to see. It's definitely a mindset of, uh, not how do we have fewer people in cinema necessarily, but how do we make their job you know, super awesome and um, a great place to work? So definitely a lot of that. I think that's a challenge
1: and you can push an employer of choice by the way you look after your team. But I think there's always been a little bit of a fallacy amongst those joining cinema who in their mind think they'll be watching red carpets and seeing Tom Cruise get a five minute standing ovation. And the reality is they're cleaning toilets and, and cinemas. And how do you balance that and make it an attractive job? I do think that if you can use technology to get rid of a lot of the transactional and operational and let them focus on the experiential and bring themselves to work, there's an opportunity there. But, Sarah, that was one panel. You moderated one yourself. So what did you oversee and what were the key insights that that came out?
3: Yeah, the number one key insight is never do a panel on a Thursday morning of Cine Europe, especially following a Vista group party that happens the night before. Uh, I felt saddled with a graveyard shift, put it that way, and which was actually really unfortunate because there were some incredible presentations. It was really a potpourri of presentations, let's say. They didn't necessarily logically fit together, but, you know, combined were lovely.
1: So we're going to break some news here today. Is that what you're telling me? You're getting, <laughs> people will be hearing things for the first time because of the success yeah. of the Vista Group Party.
3: Yeah, it was, uh, you know, we can repeat some of these sessions. You know, everything was around how different companies are innovating to improve the experience or technology innovations or piracy um, advancements to protect our industry. I think the one that stood out to me the most, um, both as a you know, someone in the industry and as a moviegoer, which I thought was really cool, was a company called Greta and Starks out of Germany. And they've created this app, which was originally designed to help the deaf and blind community enjoy movies. And it taps into um, either the audio stream from the film or subtitles, the film as you go. And, you know, really accessible technology aimed at a specific, se- um, you know, segment of our of our population who can't access movies as easily. But where they've pivoted to, which I think is really cool, is they've expanded to be about how do you broaden international audiences for films? So, if, you know, I'm an English speaker living in in Germany or, you know, a Mandarin speaker living in Italy and I want to watch a movie, but I don't have it in my language, they actually have kind of the the subtitled or dubbed versions available to you in multiple languages in multiple countries. Um, That's really not intrusive, but hopefully broadens the audience for films um, in the international community, which I think is a really interesting way of growing our business.
1: That's terrific. So, so finally, I hear there was a pretty amazing uh, participant who, who was part of the Paramount session. What was it like to be in the same room as him?
3: You know, I think Leon's already hit on how incredible it was to have Tom Cruise at the Paramount. No, no, I
1: mean Simon Burton. Didn't he present oh. before the
3: <laughs> Paramount session? Oh, Simon. Yeah, um, apparently he actually didn't get to meet Tom Cruise, that Tom Cruise was surrounded by a ton of, I guess, management, bodyguards, I don't know, but, um, you know, at that's an unfortunate uh coincidence that they were both backstage together and he didn't actually get to have a chat and tell him he was about to name his son after his his character <laughs> movie. but um well you know, you know how whatever level of tom cruise fan you are after watching the uh palm door kind of homage to him that they showed prior um you just get swept up in this amazing career and then like the big difference for me having been there last october when tom cruise also attended was Last year, he was really in sales mode. He was telling us all about Top Gun. He was talking about Mission. We saw footage. It was really like him pushing this film. This time, he stood up there very humbly and just thanked the audience for their support. And yeah, that five-minute standing ovation was enough. Thank you, probably for a long time for him because it and it was genuine. It was like hooting and hollering. It was pretty moving.
2: Yeah, I would say is I I do a speech. senior Europe last year, one this year, I, I did one last year, and he was he was uh, right after me, and it wasn't the same size crowd. Um, Tom Cruise really had made that effort in in twenty twenty one, where there was some doubts about how the industry was going to recover, and and how that film might do. Um, so I think it was incredible for him to come both last year and this year, and there is a full spectrum of opinions about Tom Cruise. But I tell you what, it's pretty hard. Uh, not to be impressed by the fact that it came. And I have to say I was wholly impressed with the reaction of the exhibitors. Europeans don't necessarily have that same showman quality that Americans often have, where they can jump jump out of their seats and um, exude energy. So for the Europeans to do that by instinct immediately without prompting, I'm really glad you asked this question at the end because I think it really sets the tone for how the, the conference uh, went I think it's terrific that he did that. And, you know, the fact that the film is doing so well, it's pretty hard not to like Tom Cruise right now if you're
1: running a movie theater. This seems like a pretty good place to leave it. Leon, thank you for your time. Sarah, thank you for yours also. No doubt we'll gather the team uh, for the next major conference and um,
0: because it'll be in fewer than nine months, Simon will be joining us as well. Thanks again. It's great to hear that there was just another convention that, Seemed to go really well this year. It's been great around globally, and and it was great to hear from from the panel there. So thanks for bringing that to us, Matthew. Next week, we have a holiday weekend here in the United States, and we're gonna have Minions hopefully taking over the box office with with some really strong numbers. And then the following week, we have Thor Love and Thunder. Uh, That is the next big Marvel release that should really bring in a lot of the box office.
1: Yeah, absolutely. It feels like a real summer happening up in the Northern hemisphere based on these releases.
0: Yep, it does.
1: Uh, Ryan, thank you again for sitting in for Simon. Once again, congratulations to Simon, his wife, Sarah, and uh, his new son, Max Maverick uh, Burton. And uh, we'll join you next week for Behind the Screens where we look at the minions. Take care. Movio and Numero are two of the businesses within the Vista Group, the world leading provider of technology solutions to the global film industry. For more moviegoer insights, be sure to visit movio.co and follow us on Twitter and LinkedIn. The Behind the Scenes podcast is produced by Grace Furness, edited by Patrick Hanna, with additional support from Ryan Preventure, Georgia Culverwell and Christine Rizzolo.